You're in the water loop. Hey everyone, this is Travis with Waterloop. I want to talk to you for just a minute about High Sierra showerheads. I use them in my house because they're a water-efficient fixture, but I'm a big fan for other reasons as well, including their design and construction. They're made of solid metal. So this High Sierra showerhead I have in my hand right now, you can tell that it's a quality well-made product, unlike the vast majority of shower heads, which involve a lot of plastic in their construction. And that's something we need less of, right? Less consumer products with plastic in them. The other awesome thing is their nozzle design. It's a unique patented nozzle that's not going to clog like so many other shower heads. The other thing about this nozzle is that it will work in low pressure. You'll still get a strong, powerful, but water-efficient shower. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 20% off at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Going to be talking for this episode with Dr. Philip Burke at the University of North Carolina. He is the director of their Center for Resilient Communities and Environment. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate the invitation. Very excited to talk about these issues, resilience and our communities, and just the incredible intersection of the two. It's a very, very timely and pressing issue. Uh, Before we dive into what resilience means, what are kind of the big challenges that are facing at-risk communities right now? Well, I think what we see is uh, the, the growing losses, and they're exacerbated by climate change in a way we're in a new, a new normal um, in this kind of age where human activities are becoming kind of a dominant force globally, but the earth systems that uh, promote basic building blocks for human civilization are on the decline. So we're seeing, um, and, the, and, and we're seeing evidence of this, like the dramatic rise of billion dollar losses. You know, we've had in the last decade, the five greatest years of billion dollar losses have occurred since you know in the last 10 years so over this over the last four decades so we're just seeing um, this this uh, increasing um, uh, level of loss so and, and on the other hand it's being exacerbated by climate change we're also seeing at the same time a dramatic increase in the wealth gap which is causing great disparities and who the level of impact across different population groups, particularly the poor, mm-hmm. and the ability to recover. And also we're seeing social polarization. And in, in the time and the age of, that we're dealing with and these grand challenges to overcome them, we have to work together mm-hmm. across government agencies, private sector, et cetera. Sure. So those those big losses you mentioned, these multi-billion dollar losses, these are from some of these natural disasters that have just devastated communities. Yeah. Uh, and those have been, again, exacerbated by climate change, right? Uh, yeah. And and I think the, the population growth in a lot of these coastal areas, the amount of infrastructure there is, um, you mentioned the, the kind of uh, income inequality and, and how that stretches a community also. Um, I think people have heard about those a lot, but I love that you mentioned this polarization as a challenge for communities yes. and their resilience. Um, yeah. I love to kind of hear a little bit more about that. What, what does that mean and how does that 
stress a community or prevent them from being more resilient? Well, I think the polarization has to do particularly at the community level. So if you're sitting in a community, and I've seen this many, many times, um, and you're planning ahead, you're looking ahead for making public investments in infrastructure and facilities for your development regulations, where's urban growth gonna, or community growth and development, where am I gonna put my homes, commercial establishments, where am I gonna invest for economic development, environmental protection. But oftentimes what we see is even within local governments, their own agencies, you know, they're each backing their own plans. The transportation department wants to extend and build roads the uh, uh, the 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 economic development department may want to say, well, we want to make infrastructure investments to stimulate development in the downtown, like um, widen uh, more parking spaces or uh, more a uh, walkable, more you know, attractive downtowns. Plenty of coastal Carolina communities are doing this. So, and what happens is we saw this. I saw this first after Hurricane Sandy. So I looked at the plans of each place. And then I saw like the hazard mitigation plan, which is the main plan that you get if you're a community and every local government has to have one in the United States. And they will, they'll, they'll say, I've seen, uh, I saw where they'll say in a particular geographic area, we need, we, we, we've, there's repetitive losses in this area. We qualify for FEMA funding for buyouts and relocation. And FEMA says, you've got to have this plan. On the other hand, you may have a comprehensive plan, like North Carolina, we have to have comprehensive plans every, it may say, or an economic development plan. We need to invest and we need to grow. And we're going to do tax incentives and raise the densities and change our zoning and public inv infrastructure investments in the same geographic area that the hazard mitigation plan says we qualify for FEMA relocation funding. Hmm. That's just one example. And then you have, we have to remember too that you have constituencies that back these plans, like a transportation plan, you build a road somewhere, you're opening up private property for development. So there are major constituencies, and if you run it through the floodplain, the transportation plan, you don't have good zoning, and you don't have the right kind of stormwater infrastructure to keep up with the new growth. You know, these yeah. things kind of are all interdependent, and they're cascading in terms of failure in a community. And if you're not, and if you're polarized and not working together, you know, it's very difficult to be able to and uh, to be able to be resilient. So these the polarization among different departments within a government entity or even uh, the constituents that back the priorities of those different agencies. And this has in has been on the increase uh, in your observation in, in recent years. They've become more yeah, yeah. divided or more siloed. Even the smallest communities. Uh, little uh, Washington, North Carolina, for example, or New Bern or places like that. If you go and open up their website, you'll see many plans from, you know, at different geographic scales, community-wide or just a particular neighborhood or a downtown or a waterfront. And then if you really look at, you trace kind of how the, the proposals, whether they're regulatory or infrastructure investments or um, oftentimes are not congruent. They don't work together in the same geographic area. What, what, any idea why it's become more polarized or more divided? Well, I think, you know, we've got a, we've got a growing number of federal governments in the years that I've been teaching and doing research and practicing in urban planning and community planning. 
I've seen a growing number of standalone plans being mandated by, say, the federal government. You want funding for transportation, you have to have a you have to have a transportation plan in your region. You want to have, if you want hazard mitigation funds after, you know, to get eligible to get them after a disaster, you have to have one of these plans, right? A hazard mitigation plan. Uh, the state of North Carolina, along with many, many other states, are saying you have to have a comprehensive land use plan. And, uh, uh, and, and on it goes. I mean, I could just list off capital improvement programs like for stormwater infrastructure. Uh, utilities, sewer, water, that kind of thing. They all have their own, you know, oftentimes they're independent utilities um, and uh, uh, conservation groups, affordable housing groups that may be outside of government back their own initiatives. And so what we see is sort of uh, oftentimes cross purposes. The, hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, uh, thanks for laying out a couple of those big uh, macro level challenges there. Yeah. What What does it mean? We hear this term resilience a lot, right? right. <laughs> resilient communities. Um, what does it mean to be a resilient community? I think a resilient community is one that's able to anticipate, look ahead and anticipate there's going to be change. And we know that there's there's a new normal now no longer are major disaster events the exception. They're becoming the rule more. Sea level rise, climate change are exacerbating all this. So we have to anticipate. And, and, and then we have to create a plan, right, for the community to be able to, and it should be an integrated plan, right? We were talking about that. Mm. And it also has to be a plan that focuses more on, rather than just kind of one fixed future, and it, it has to adapt to change and adversity. It has to be a plan that builds in flexibility adaptation. It also has to be a plan that says, look, we're gonna get shocks like, like hurricanes, we're gonna get stressors like sea level rise. So, uh, and these are increasing. So when we do get these events that impact our community, can rather than just bouncing back to the way we were, right, and going back to the status quo, can we rebuild in a way where we're healthier? You know, public health issues, I could get into that. Less vulnerable to loss, more equitable in the way we rebuild, you know, and, and these kinds of things. So can we, so, so that's to me a resilient community. Um, one that has the capacity to anticipate, plan for, and adapt to adversity and transform during recovery. On the water front, um, not literally, yeah. but but when it comes right. to water issues, um, right. what what does it mean to be resilient when it when it comes to water? Well, I think you know water is a huge global issue that tra that's going to have a massive impact. And if we're looking at water, you know, there's shocks whether we like hurricanes or rainfall events, which are the severity is predicted with climate change to increase. You could have a stressor like sea level rise. In terms of water quality, you know, if, if, we, if we aren't paying attention to our, um, uh, like the ecosystems, natural functions that off, that, that can, like wetlands that can mitigate the risk, purify pollutants, public health or toxic or whatever. So there's a lot of functions there. So water is critical. Um, and and uh, in terms of uh, 
And I don't think we're, when we think about water, I'll kind of move more on the risk side in terms of shocks and stressors. I think that, uh, you know, we're not recognizing oftentimes where the floodplain is. North Carolina is one of the top three states in allowing permitting new homes, 9,000 of them, between 2010, 2016, a new study by Climate Central just came out. We're one of the top three states in allowing development. You know, sea level rise, you know, new studies coming out. We, during the 20th century, it's risen uh, four to five inches, but even without, you know, significant re reductions, or even if we can cut carbon emissions, um, we're still thinking about a one and a half foot sea level rise. It's mm. a study that just came out in Nature, right? mm. uh, academic journal, so it's research. So uh, these things kind of, um, they're, they're uh, and then the, the whole notion of uh, the disparities, um, mm. you know, in terms of these risks generated by water-related events, drought, yeah. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, we've obviously mentioned climate change a, a number of times here, and mm -hmm. I guess I guess that's a real driver for how the definition of resilience has changed uh, over the years. Um, mm -hmm. is, is that so? And are there other factors that have forced the definition of resilience to evolve? Well, I think I kind of mentioned a, a couple of them. I think that it's the whole notion of the ability to adapt you know, learn as we go along and and look into the future and say, we, you know, we just can't have one single future we need to plan for. That would maybe scenarios of alternative futures. So we need really good and we need to build that into our plans. We need to build flexibility into our plans. We need to emphasize strong this whole notion of learning. It's monitoring and we need good science to monitor change and to monitor, to monitor our forecasts, but our forecasts have to account for this increasing uncertainty. And then we need to have the, the science to say, well, what's happening? And do we need, you know, are we shifting in one regime of scenario versus another? I think that's really pressing and this whole notion of flexibility has become a big, um, a, a big, pro a big problem. So if you wanna be able to adapt to these things, learn, transform, be flexible, you need to be coordinated. You know, you need to have integrated, coordinated, recognize interdependencies across different ways communities manage land development, growth, housing, you know, these kinds of things. When it comes to that planning and climate change, you know, it seems mm -hmm. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of predictions about climate change. There's a lot of modeling about the impacts yes. of what's gonna happen. And I, you know, I have a lot of faith in the science uh, that a lot of that is accurate and informed by the best data, but there's also uncertain, uncertainty there, right? And, and yes. some unpredictability about the impacts of climate change, the pace, the rate. Um, mm -hmm. how, can, how can resilience work uh, factor in that, that unpredictability of, of climate change or the uncertainty of exactly how the impacts are going to pan out? Well, we need to kind of say, you know, I think side on error and the certain, and this is much of this is judgment, but, mm. um, you know, we've seen, for example, what our hydraulic models have said, this is the, this is the floodplain, right? And they draw lines on where the floodplain is. 
and it's a judgment. Is it the floodplain, the 100-year event, which is the national standard? How high does the water get and how far inland does it go if we had a once-in-a-100-year storm? Well, when those models were done, the climate change wasn't built into them. So now we're finding that they're getting higher and they're in terms of vertical height, the depth of the water, whether it's surge or riverine flooding, and as well as the floodplains are getting wider. So maybe we need to say in terms of building standards, we need to go beyond like an elevation. We need to add an extra foot or two when we build, you know, beyond what we thought was the minimum before. Maybe we need to um, uh, make sure that we, we build our infrastructure in a way, one, if we can avoid floodplains, right? And if we can't, um, can we build our infrastructure that we know it's going to get flooded? Can, will it work? Our water, our electricity, our, you know, the, the, uh, these types of things. Uh, and, and can we, uh, so those are the kinds of things that we need to be, uh, we also can say, look, can we create, strategies where if we make a, an investment, do we put, say, uh, a low regrets building into the, the way we build a building? Mm-hmm. Or it's going to be more expensive, but maybe we put the, all the high-tech equipment instead of on the ground floor, we put it in the second floor, hmm. right? So that, okay, it costs a little more, maybe for the building, the building, designing it that way. But it, it's a, it's a way that we can say, okay, we're, you know, it's still going to function. It's not going to be something dramatic, you know. Um, but there's, uh, that, there's that margin of safety there that you build into it, right? Yeah. Maybe we make our setbacks a little deeper when we want to, you know, from the floodplain or setbacks from the shoreline or the water's edge. Before we might have had setbacks like in North Carolina or Texas or whatever that may have said so many feet. Can we make them, you know, deeper than before, you know, if that's possible? So yeah. in a lot of the, a lot of these things err towards the worst case scenario or the the far end of of what's predicted, right? right. Plan, plan toward that side. Okay. Right. Makes, some makes yeah, it's a lot of it is judgment. In some cases, I worked in Louisiana on their coastal master plan, and they said we cannot lose our wetlands. Hmm. Right. That's the worst case is our wetlands are gone if we do you know um, in terms of the predictions. So they're going to spend to the maximum worst case, very expensive. Mm. But they say we, it's something we cannot, you know, uh, we, can, we, we, we have to do. And uh, so it's going to be very expensive. In other cases, you may say, well, maybe we could just like the second floor analogy. Maybe we can do low regret investments. Yeah. But the, the high regret would be, well, if we didn't do the worst case scenario, we'd lose the entire wetland complex in front of 100 miles wide, 90 miles wide, because wow. it's sinking in dramatically. Yeah. Uh, I want to pivot a little bit to some of some of your work on resilience and some kind of case studies and, and solutions or, or um, approaches that are good for others to maybe model. Um, you know, I think you've mentioned when we talked before about work in places like Texas, New Hampshire, North Carolina. Could you maybe talk about uh, some things that communities have done or are doing, um, you know, specifically? Yeah. Right. Well, um, specifically, if you look at like the city of Norfolk, they've, they, uh, we worked with them on something called a res- plan integration for resilience scorecard. 
it's a diagnostic tool to look at plan integration across their different um, uh, 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 different ways they manage growth and development in the community and plan for it. So, but what they've done is they said we're going to have a retreat strategy. We cannot afford in certain parts of the city to build expensive infrastructure to protect, like a levee or a seawall, to protect, um, say, low-density residential development. And it keeps flooding and flooding anyway, and the sea level rise, we see it, and it's no longer working in the city. The streets are flooding at high tide when the skies are blue. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what they're saying is we're going to have a gradual retreat. Every time we get an event, we're going to offer buyouts, you know, a disaster, like a, like a, a severe event extreme event. Um, but we're also going and we're, we're looking at our parks. We're going to invest in parks in those areas, right? Because they can flood and you don't have a great loss. We're going to try to, we're not going to expand our infrastructure anymore. We're a city that's growing, but we're not going to expand in these retreat areas. But instead, the higher elevation parts of the city have opportunities for more development. So they're going to do it. They're going to raise the densities for the zoning. They're going to try to create mixed uses of development, housing and commercial, serving the house residents and, and so on, and um, in the higher elevations. And they want to expand transit and make it a walkable places, make it a kind of a real sustainable, kind of uh, smart city in the higher elevation areas. So that's what they want to plan for their future growth. In other areas, they're trying to say, uh, like the downtown or the seaport, they're saying we're going to invest heavily in infrastructure investments because it's so expensive. I mean, the, the jobs, the tax base are so high, it's worth investing in those places. So that, that's kind of a – but that takes a lot of moving parts to work together. I've, I've often wondered about that retreat approach. You, you see these mm -hmm. vulnerable communities, especially to sea level rise and storms, and it's like at what point do they – cut their losses, if you will, all right, and just start to, yeah. to back out of those areas. So that's that's interesting to hear they decided that. Um, and I also wonder how that goes over with the public, you know, with residents. If they're, Very difficult. Yeah. I think, though, that places, you know, Norfolk's a blue-collar town and uh, a diverse city. But when during high tide, you know, the lunar, the king tides, it floods so frequently that people are pretty much conditioned. Climate change is here, mm. and they're asking the city, and there's, the city is getting pressure and responding effectively to do the development regulations, do the infrastructure investments, do the acquisition strategies for parks or relocation, buyouts, like a, to get them all to work together in different parts of the community and, and, and uh, treat different parts of the community differently because they have different needs, different values, different concerns, and that kind of thing, and different levels of risk. And then it makes me worry, uh, wonder about a place like Miami or Miami Beach, um, where yeah. you know they're they're having uh, water creeping in there, and and how their approach is different. Um, are there are there other places? Um, you know, you've, I know you've worked in Texas. You mentioned New Hampshire before. Are there other communities that are taking a, maybe a different approach or different wrinkles to it? Well, I could talk about the Netherlands. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, the Netherlands is kind of the global leader in all this. And what they've done, they said we can no longer, and we've spent the last three years working there, um, and they said we can no longer keep building dikes and levees. 
right, it is too expensive because the glaciers are melting at a rapid rate and the, all the rivers run the Rhine and so on, the Muir run through the Netherlands. The rainfall events are becoming intensifying, becoming more severe. The sea is rising and we can't keep building our way. We have a 400, 500 year history of building our way out of this. We have great engineers, water engineers, but we're, we have to come up more with the land use strategy because it's just becoming too expensive. It's cheaper to relocate parts of cities. Mm. So they have room for the river, they call it. And they're actually relocating different 30 neighborhoods in 30 different cities throughout, throughout the Netherlands. And they're trying to do this, what I call something similar to Norfolk, because Norfolk has been engaging with the Netherlands. The Netherlands also says, well, instead of creating, you know, a building, putting a parking lot in, in the downtown Rotterdam, why don't we put parking lots, it's more expensive, yes, but we're going to put them under buildings, right? And those parking lots can serve as massive flood detention basins, okay? Or why don't we create blue spaces as long as, as well as green spaces in the city? We're going to live with the water. Hmm. So we'll create a civic plaza and they can play soccer, their version of <laughs> football, they call it there, yeah. or play basketball. They got a lot of basketball in these civic arenas these civic plazas and i've sat in them and stadiums and so on but you know if we get a major river event because most of the downtown rotterdam the second largest city will flood right it's below sea level and they're seeing this happen more and more this thing will fill up the plaza because it's lower than the surrounding neighborhood so they're putting these plazas in throughout so they're kind of saying we're going to live with the water hmm. you know or if it's too expensive we're going to retreat yeah well, I mean, yeah, like you said, the Dutch certainly have a multi-century history of being yeah. water engineers and, and global leaders on this mm -hmm. front. And I know that a lot of U.S. cities have looked to them, you know, for the past hundred years and now increasingly yes. recently for… Yes, New Orleans, uh, Norfolk, uh, many, many, yeah. Mm. Uh, a couple other pieces that, that uh, programs you're involved with, I just wanted to, to hear about. That. You mentioned that resilience scorecard. Um, right. What is that, and how can communities use that as a real practical tool for, for addressing their issues? Okay, well, we've worked with multiple cities, communities, from 10,000 population to 250,000, from Texas to Virginia to New Hampshire. We want to engage and apply it to North Carolina. We have a couple of communities we're in mind that we want to contact. And basically, what we do is we say, um, if you think of uh, 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 all these different kind of investment strategies, capital improvement programs and different plans I've been talking about, what we actually is we layer them on top of each other. Then we look at the policy initiatives in each one at the neighborhood scale. And we say, look, you're pulling apart or are you working together? Or are there unforeseen opportunities pulling together a parks plan for funding for land acquisition and a buyout plan for, from FEMA? Can we pull funding together and do a win-win? You know, so and so we 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 try to get the community to uh, take the tool as a diagnostic to see, and particularly where there are conflicts or these opportunities to create win-win situations that they weren't thinking through. And, uh, and thinking about and this and inherently we find it's a research tool that we developed five years ago. We won an award for it. We've gotten lots of grants from the National Science Foundation. We got to go to Netherlands and so on and be working there across the U.S. But 
I came at this point in my career, I said, look, there's, there's some value here in terms of translating it to, to practice, to mm-hmm. actually helping communities do more resilient work. And so we've seen, uh, so we work with communities and Norfolk is one of them, yeah. um, Nashua, New Hampshire, uh, Rockport, Texas, and so on, that we've actually worked with and engaged to help them do better integrated planning. Yeah. Well, that seems that seems to be so important to have a practical tool, um, yes. you know, because it can be overwhelming, I imagine, trying to sort through all these different competing interests and programs and to actually start taking steps someplace. Uh, so to have yes. that that template's great. Um, yes. A couple of, another one here uh, that you've been involved with is the uh, Resilient American Program of the National Academies of Sciences. Yes, yes, I'm a, uh, uh, on the advisory board there, and uh, that's kind of a multi-year effort where we try to look at, um, we're in a very broad level, we target different regions that are high risk in the U.S., and we'll want to test engagement methods for building resilience and their new technologies, crowdsourcing, and all these things that mm. you know I'm trying to keep up with. <laughs> but we also want to look at how different kinds of data sources can be used to improve the understanding of, of risk um, and, and the understanding of impacts, okay, and uh, on the community. And can this motivate, you know, change? And how can we engage these communities to take these new kinds of technologies and the latest available science, but frame it in a way and use it in a way that local officials can can understand and react to, and uh, also the residents. So hmm. uh, that's kind of the the, the ten thousand foot explanation. Sure, sure. Hmm. Uh, so the Urban Institute's global evaluation of the Rockefeller Foundation Global One Hundred Resilient Cities. That's right. been a big initiative for a long time, uh, trying to get right. these these cities uh, across the planet to uh, you know work on resilience and to learn from each other. Um, yes. So this is a, this is an evaluation that that's gone on, on on how that has progressed. Right, and yes, and I was asked to advise and consult on. What part of this, uh, if you're awarded a, if you become, which is, it's, the program's over now, but it, I think it had a good impact globally on 100 cities around the world. And he, one of the elements that they had to do, one of the major elements was to create a resilience plan, right? And, uh, and to guide what I'm talking about, much of what I've been talking about with the resilience scorecard that I mentioned. And what they've, and then, to track outcomes as a result. You know, you can do a plan, but it doesn't, so what? It doesn't generate <laughs> outcomes. So we we try to look at, evaluate the quality of these plans. They actually call them resilient strategies. And then what are the outcomes? How, how can we develop a, uh, a, uh, a research methodologies for tracking outcomes? Mm. Very. Um, yeah, I know. I know that's been a big, a big effort. Again, uh, those those global resilient cities. Uh, the other right. one, uh, another awesome institute here, the National Science Foundation. I think you mentioned mm-hmm. them. Uh, Social Science Extreme Events Reconnaissance Platform. That's a that's a, yes. a yeah, that's right. <laughs> what, what's what's that all about? I don't know. Can you tell me? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really about creating interdisciplinary teams. 
know, not just social scientists go out, not just engineers. We've had, a, you know, if you work solo with your own field, you know, you, you, know you, can, you can have great epidemiology for predicting vaccines or spreads, but you, there's a human and behavioral component to getting the people to adapt and all this. So you need teams. And so what, in this case, it's about uh, doing reconnaissance, going out after events hmm. where um, or going where, where um, it could be a disaster event, but it also could be a long-term stressor like sea level or, or, or heat buildup. Or, and then trying to go out and actually do field sites and then have coordinated, we call them data protocols, that when we collect the data, they can be integrated much easier across the disciplines so that when we try to understand the factors that cause change, whether it's human and behavioral change, what might lead to a better, you know, physical outcome because there's a policy that's been adopted or there's been a compliance to the policies that have been adopted or what have you. We try to, you know, there's a lot of research and unknowns in that. So going out into the field and trying to, you know, um, reconnaissance mm-hmm. and it becoming much more integrated. And it, it's an attempt to do this um, globally, uh, pr- primarily now North America, but the initiative is to expand globally and then to create repositories for large um, data sets um, that, that different researchers from around the world can use and that they're integrated so you don't have to you know, they can be shared and there's a common platform. I don't know if you get all that. But, yeah, no, no, yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a big challenge. We uh, not only can we go get all this data out there with our, in our digital world, but then how do you how do you pull all that data into one place and make exactly. it or, organized and accessible? It's a huge challenge, exactly. but it's a huge exactly. opportunity also, right, to, to learn from that data. Right. Right. Um, Last but not least, uh, you've kind of come home uh, back to Chapel Hill there, uh, and and North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think you're happy to happy to be back here. Uh, I'm I'm down the road in Wilmington again, Um, but. But the, the, the UNC Center for Resilient Communities and the Environment uh, and, and the Coastal Resilience Center, um, what are you all focusing on there? Well, <clears throat> the big thing there is we're trying to do three, three things at once. Hmm. Um, take a pan-university effort um, and, <clears throat> and uh, focused on building resiliency at the community scale, particularly we're interested in. So we're trying to work with different disciplines across the across the university hmm. in ways that I've kind of talked about what we're doing with NSF. We're just doing it at a UNC scale. Hmm. Both are complicated, <laughs> just as you know, in a way, but both equivalent. And uh, we're also trying to engage, like I talked about, you know, before. We're trying to engage communities directly and develop some skill to do that and then work with skilled practitioners that are accustomed to engaging communities within our own fields, Mm. right? And who understand because they're on the ground, they're screaming all the time, work together. You know, just don't tell us one part of the problem, tell us the whole problem so we can come up with a comprehensive solution. So what we're trying to do there is engage. So I think we do better science as a result if we do community engagement. We also, uh, along the way, we're trying to train a new generation of students that can work in a, in if you're a geo a geoengineer or a coastal engineer, or you're a uh, 
sociologist, Ern, uh, can, can you speak the language? Can you work along with other students and other faculty on these problems, right? Because we're actually engaging the community, hmm. so they learn some engagement and actual, and they also learned to talk across disciplines, they boundary span. And I think it's a new generation of uh, a way to educate students hmm. and uh, educate and come up with skills to be able to problem solve. Well, that gets to what you said in the very beginning of this conversation about the, the separation, the fractured nature, the polarization of different agencies yeah. and departments and plans. And so this is a, a practical way right. to try to address that. Yeah. yeah. And one of the key, key initiatives we're starting is the plan integration score, resilient scorecard. There's a website on that. Okay. Mitigation guide, one word, mitigationguide.org. And in there, there's a how-to manual for local government officials to use. And we, we would love to engage North Carolina communities where we can do research, mm. we can engage community, and we have students involved. Yeah. So, so there you go. Pro- On-the-ground solutions. I like yeah, it. Well, that's yeah, well, I uh, I appreciate this. That there's uh, so many angles we covered and so many programs we could go on and on, but uh, this is really helpful, really informative. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome, Travis. I appreciate the invitation. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. The Waterloop Podcast is brought to you by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart and stylish way to save water, energy, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Use promo code Waterloop for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. You're in the Waterloop. Waterloop.